You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Have you ever wondered why evil or suffering was happening to you? If you've ever been there, then you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about because this is, when you get into that place and things are hard and they're painful, we start to ask questions. God, where are you? God, why is this happening? God, why didn't you stop it? When is it going to end? And we start to ask these questions because we don't understand fully what God is up to, his role in it, and what he is trying to do. This series really became birthed in me two years ago. Uh, I was on a mission trip in Peru, and one of the people on our trip from Kingsway uh, ended up needing to go to the doctor. And so I went with him, and they sent with us a translator. And this lady who was with us, she was actually from Germany. Since I don't speak Spanish, like my Spanish comes from Dora. That's like as good as it gets. So she went with us, and we got to talking, and she, I think it's partly because I'm, uh, I really am curious about people, and I really love people, so I just started asking questions, asking questions, asking questions, and those questions kind of led us down a path to where she revealed some trauma from her childhood. Her older brother, when she was roughly eight years old, I'm going to put it in general terms, in case there's kids in the room, abused her. And um, here she was now. Many years later, she had been um, later brought into a foster situation by a different family, and now she found herself at this orphanage in Peru and working at this orphanage and just wrestling with God. And I told her, I said, I, I think I can maybe help you a little bit. And what that began was those who wanted to join us, we sat down in the evening and we just started studying the book of Job. But we got a couple of nights into that conversation and we just ran out of time. And I promised her one day, one day, I'm gonna do a sermon series on this subject and I'll finish teaching on some of the things that I need to teach on for you. And that's where this series was birthed out of. But here's the problem. The more that I read, the more that I study, the more I go, there's just not enough time. I mean, people write entire books on this stuff, and we're going to try to give four brief weeks to it. So what I'm going to try to do in this series is not teach you everything that you need to know on pain and suffering and evil and the problem of evil. What I want to try to do is give you some anchors. Anchors will hold you steady in the storm. When the waters are just raging back and forth and the wind is blowing and howling everywhere, if you have an anchor, you could stay strong. If not, you're going to get blown off course or possibly destroyed. So, I know you will still have questions, and part of the reason I know that is because I do too. But, let's go ahead and jump into the book of Job. If you have a Bible, if you know how to use a Bible, go ahead and open to Job chapter 1. There are 41 of these. We aren't going to get through them all today. Actually, there's 42. We're not going to get through them all today. We're going to do the one, two, skip a few. So, if you have a Bible open or if you have an app open, when your brain is wandering, because I hear this happens from time to time in sermons, when your brain is wandering, maybe it'll wander into the text a little because I'm gonna have to summarize some pieces. Here we go. Job chapter one, verse one. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Meh, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. 
first thing that the book of Job is trying to set up for us is that Job was a good man, upright and blameless in all his ways. That does not mean that Job is perfect or without sin. That's not at all what you need to understand. There's only been one man, Jesus, who's ever lived that life. But what the Bible's trying to establish is, is in as much as any of us can calculate whether a person is good or not, Job was good. And it goes out of his way to let you know, not only was Job good, but he's a good businessman. He is very wealthy, very blessed, many servants or employees, and he takes care of them all like a good businessman would do. But the most critical part of all this, not only does it proclaim his goodness and his righteousness, but it also illustrates it for us. When his children, his seven sons and three daughters, get together and throw parties, Job wakes up early the next day and sacrifices for them. Now that's important because Job was probably written somewhere shortly after Genesis chapter six. We can't know that for sure. It's definitely talked about and theorized among scholars and, and theologians. There's no way to know for sure. But based off the way the text is written, the, the clues in the text tell us this is probably the first book written in the Bible, not the oldest, it's the oldest actual written book, but it's not covering the oldest content. Genesis does that. However, where it's placed means something because there's no sacrificial system in place. That would come about hundreds of years later when we get to like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and so on. So what we have is a man who loves God, fears him, knows that everything he has comes from him and wants to honor him. So when his kids are throwing a party, just in case they sinned, he wakes up early the next day and sacrifices in order to please God. The Old Testament law required sacrifices for our sins, which is why Jesus died. But Job is doing all this before anybody told him you ought to do it. And that's huge because the book is trying to establish for you that Job is a good man, which goes to the heart of suffering for all of us, doesn't it? Like, I'm a good person, God. Why are you letting this happen to me? And what we start to learn through the book of Job is that suffering has nothing to do with goodness or evil. The evil get blessed and the good sometimes get cursed. But the good also get blessed and sometimes the evil get cursed. It's kind of irrelevant in the equation. Well, then who is to blame? Let's keep reading. I'm gonna summarize a few things and do a little bit of explaining for you. But what I'm about to do is open a can, a can of worms. I don't even know what that analogy means. But fish like worms and I don't fish. So there's probably a connection there. I'm gonna talk about a subject that I have like two minutes to talk about, and so it's going to make your mind wander, and I'm only going to ask you to stay as focused with me as possible. Over the last four years or so, I would roughly estimate that I've spent 40 to 60 hours of time studying the topic of spiritual beings. There's a lot we don't know, there's a lot we do know, and we don't understand because we don't really take time to understand the things the Bible does say. What Job reveals to us, in part, is that God loves to lead through free agents. And I know that's a big, deep philosophical concept, free agents. But the whole idea, stick with me, in the garden, when God made Adam and Eve, he made the entire universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, everything. God made the first garden. He put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply, and subdue the earth. The whole idea is, as Adam and Eve had children, they would fill up the garden, and the garden would have to expand. But outside of the garden, it was wild. 
Not wild like African safari, animals are going to eat you wild. Wild like it's a completely different world that we can even wrap our heads around, but it needed tamed and controlled and turned into a garden like the garden that Adam and Eve lived in. There were no weeds, there weren't going to be hard work involved, but it was still going to be work. And that was God intending to lead on the earth through human beings. In the same way that God intends to lead on the earth through human beings, God has a spiritual world he intends to lead through as well. We often refer to them as angels or angels and demons, but they are spiritual beings that God uses to interact with his world, to do his will in the world. And there are many, many texts. Again, I'm opening this can of worms. Now you're going, I got all these questions. I know, I know, but it's not the total focus of today's message. But it explains what happens next in Job chapter 1. God has an accountability day because every great boss holds his employees accountable. God calls the spiritual beings in to give an account of the work that they're doing on the earth. And a a, a spiritual being shows up in the heavenly courts and he has a conversation with God. Take a look with me now. Job chapter one, verse eight. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is No one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, I'm not gonna say this over and over and over again. I'm gonna say it one time and move on. But the word Satan here isn't actually the word Satan. The word Satan here is actually a Hebrew phrase. It's the word ha-satan, and it literally means the adversary, the adversary. What is an adversary? An adversary is one who opposes you and comes against you. Now, we've used many names or titles to describe this character throughout the Bible. Some of you grew up in a tradition where you were told his name was Lucifer. The devil's name, a devil's just another title, is not Lucifer. That actually comes from a Latin translation written by Jerome in the Vulgate of one verse in the book of Isaiah where we translated, I think it was Hebrew into Greek into Latin and then took out of the Latin this concept for him. It's just a word. So, and I don't have time to go any deeper on that. You can actually Google that. Wikipedia is pretty clear on that one, I think. But Wikipedia, that great source for doctrine. But anyway, so we call him many things. He's called a serpent in Genesis. He's called the great dragon in Revelation. He's called a lion who prowls around seeking whom he can devour by Peter. He's called many, many things. A strong man by Jesus, the morning star. He's got... All these different titles. Satan, the Hasatan, the adversary, is used to describe the fact that you and I have an enemy. Where did the enemy come from? There are questions we don't have answers for. What we know is this he's a spiritual being, meaning he was created by God. But he wasn't created for evil, he's a free agent free will agent like you and I. He has the choice to do good. He has the choice to do evil. And most likely, the first moment of his rebellion against God was there in the garden when he went to Eve and deceived her and lied to her and said, did God really say what you think God said? And he already began to spill out lies to lead Eve and eventually Adam on a trap to destruction. And now we find him in the heavenly courts and the name of Job is raising up before God. Look at verse nine. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. Now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And herein lies the game, if you will. Satan believes the only reason Job praises God is because he's blessed. Take away his blessing, you'll see the real heart of this man. Years ago, I was in an accountability group with one of my uh, good friends, pastor that I used to work with named Mitch. And we were doing this um, men's study thing. It was like a daily devotion thing. We would read it, come together, share like what's going on in our lives, pray for each other, move on. And I'll never forget this one day. It was by Steve Arterburn. And there was this one day that said, are you a man that God can bet on? And he used the example of Job, Daniel, and Noah. And especially if you focus in here on Job, Satan is questioning Job's commitment to God. When life is good, Job will praise him. But when life is hard, like all men and all women, he'll walk away from you. God's response. Verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Again, I want to give you anchors. In fact, I'll probably be frustrating to you in many ways because I'll give you more anchors than answers. But one of the anchors I want you to settle in your heart, if God takes away the blessing that you're currently experiencing, will you still praise him? Because the reality is, our faith must go beyond the physical. Our faith must be something that is anchored in someone that holds us when life is falling apart. We'll come back to that. Satan goes out from here, and I'm going to um, summarize a few things for you. But Satan comes out from here, and what happens next is uh, a group of people called the Sabaeans. They go out, and they attack. And Job loses all of his oxen and donkeys. Then a fire comes down from heaven. We don't know if this is lightning or something else, but a fire comes down from heaven and burns up all of his sheep as well as all the servants there. And then the Chaldeans show up and they form raiding parties and they attack all of his servants, carry him off, and the camels. In each of those attacks with the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, and the fire from heaven, one servant from each group gets away and comes to Job one after another. Says, Job, 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 you're never going to believe this. This just happened. And the next servant, Job, 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 you're never going to believe this. just happened. Job, 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 you're never going to believe this. This just happened. One of the things, the anchors that I want you to get today, except for the fire from heaven, when you look at the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, both of these groups were used by the enemy, the Hasatan to create pain in Job's life. This is critical. I could spend an entire message on this, but listen. Sometimes the evil and the suffering that we experience in this life comes at the hands of other people, does it not? The Bible teaches us that there are actually many spirits at work in this world. There's, first of all, the spirit of man. 
it's a biblical term to refer to the fact that inside of each of us is a spirit, inside of each of us. And we are free will agents, so we have the choice to do good and bad, evil or right or wrong at any moment. That's our spirit. In fact, James builds on this and says, uh, when you are tempted, don't say that God is tempting me. God's not tempting you. You're tempted by your own evil desires. The spirit of your flesh in rebellion against God is what's tempting you. But beyond that, there's also evil spirits, spiritual beings. When Satan fell and convinced a portion of heaven to follow with him in the rebellion, those spirits are now at work in the world for evil rather than for good. Instead of working for God, they're working against God. But not only that, the Bible also discusses something called the spirit of this world. The spirit of this world refers to the fact that in this world, the systems of the world are set up against you in case you haven't noticed. Have you ever noticed how much oppression there is in the world? How much racism there is in the world? I don't care which system you pick, which government system you pick, because the human spirit is in rebellion against God, all systems fail and break down, all of them. And the spirit of this world is that our enemy is at work in those various systems to create evil and pain and suffering in the world. But then there's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the presence of God at work in the lives of those surrendered to him. I say this because what we see in this text is that the instigator of your suffering is not God, it's your adversary. When life hurts and things are going wrong, we tend to say, God, why are you doing this? Why didn't you stop it? Where are you? Do you care? Are you paying attention? But in reality, it's our enemy who is coming at us. So when a spouse or a friend co-worker, a boss, maybe an enemy is attacking you, instead of seeing it as that person is coming at you, see it as the enemy at work trying to do what he does best, which is steal, kill, and destroy. John Eldridge, uh, in one of his books, I think it was Wild at Heart, I can't remember, he tells this great story about driving down the road with his wife, and they're getting along great. He loves his wife. They're doing great. I think they're going on a family vacation or something, and all of a sudden, she makes this comment, and that comment had lots of baggage for him and things they'd fought about in the past, and immediately, like in his heart, he literally in his head said, I am so tired of dealing with this woman. I just want to be done with her. I'm ready to divorce her, and he said, as I thought about that, I thought, five minutes ago, I was content to spend the rest of my life with her. Where did that thought come from? Where do you think that thought came from? I would suggest to you, in that situation, it comes from your enemy seizing on your flesh to take your pride or your lust or your desires and seize upon them to twist them into something evil. But he's doing that in any number of ways all the time. We tend to think of the Hasatan, in terms of especially coming out of Halloween, we tend to think of him in all these ghoulish ways. He's actually probably not at all like that. He's so good at looking beautiful and desirous because he's so conniving. Rarely does he display himself to be this twisted figure because you could see evil and call evil evil in a heartbeat. He more presents himself as an angel of light. Let's come back to Job now. 
At this, it says, verse 20, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. First of all, the whole ripping your clothes, shaving your head, a little weird, right? Like, Job, okay, well, everybody teach their own. This is a normal response for a Hebrew person where they would, you see this throughout, even in the New Testament, when sometimes Jesus makes his bold proclamation of divinity and, and the, the Pharisees or whatever get up and rip their clothing. This is a normal Hebrew way of showing sorrow or showing grief or showing anger, or showing hurt. It's a strong emotion. They get up, they rip their clothes and the point of shaving your heads, he's just broken. I mean, yes, he lost his cattle and he's lost his entire business. It's all gone. But he lost his children that he loved dearly. He's a broken man. But in his brokenness, the enemy lost because he would not partner with the Hasatan by cursing God. That's so powerful. Chapter two begins, and there's a heavenly court again, and the spiritual beings are called to give an account again. It's on another day. We don't know exactly what day this is. But in walks the Hasatan, and God has just like won the ultimate final or fantasy football like championship, but he's got bragging rights. And so, I'm, I'm, okay, that's like not a great comparison, but take a look. Job chapter two, verse three. Then the Lord said to the Hasatan, and I read a hint of gloat over this. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And oh, by the way, he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Again, anchors more than answers, okay? But notice, Satan had no authority if it wasn't given to him by God. God is the one who said go. And it brings up questions that I know we want answers I'll give you a little bit today, but again, I'm gonna give you anchors more than answers. But for God's reasons and for God's purposes, he allowed the Hasatan to do this to Job. And he's losing. Satan is losing. But he's not done yet. Verse four, skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand, strike his flesh and bones. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery, scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So first of all, now Job has lost everything, his entire business, all of his children. And now he's lost his health. He's covered in sores. He can't walk or stand. It's on the bottom of his feet, all the way to the top of his head. It's not a part of his body. This word here, he sat among the ashes. We aren't exactly sure the best way to translate this. The Greek Septuagint, which was most likely written by Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the Babylonian captivity, the Greek Septuagint. So this comes out of the Hebrew. The Greek translation says he sat among the dung heap. And we honestly don't know which is the best translation. What you ought to see is a man full of such pain and sorrow in his life, not just from relational and business, but now physically he's outside his house. He's sitting among the ashes or among the dung. The dung was often burned for fuel in that day. And imagine a man who is a stench to everybody in his life. 
Most of his servants have died. There's only a handful left. He has nothing left to provide for any of them. How's he going to feed his servants and their families? How's he going to take care of them? None of them want to help him. None of them want to come alongside him. He's got a pot shard, a broken pot, and he's digging at whatever this infection is all over his body, probably to relieve the pain or possibly the itching. There's possibly pus oozing out. I know. Did you have to say ooze? But it's coming out on his body as he digs at it. And he's literally a stench relationally. And he's a stench to the people. And nobody wants anything to do with him. And he's probably either putting in dung into the cuts or ashes into the cuts to sop up the stuff flowing from his body. God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Blameless, he's upright. What has Job ever done a day in his life to deserve that? But the enemy is no fool. The enemy isn't done trying to torture Job. Look at verse nine. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Okay, first of all, let's give her a little bit of grace, okay? She just lost everything, including her children. She's hurting, she's angry, and she's bitter. The difference between Job's wife and Job is that Job is refusing to let go of God. And we don't know exactly where she is. At the end of Job's life, you go to chapter 42, God gives back what was lost. He, can't, he didn't bring back from the dead the children. He gave them more children. He blessed them, took care of them, brought the business back. God did those things. She's hurting. But let me just give a little bit of advice. Again, this is more of an anchor than an answer. Men and women grieve differently. I don't know if you knew that. And I've watched, as 20 years of being a pastor now, so many marriages fall apart because the family goes through tragedy and men and women grieve differently. I'm gonna paint with big, broad brushes for a second and it always gets me in trouble. So will you just give me grace? If you don't fit this description, that's fine. It's not even a big deal. I just wanna illustrate the fact that men and women grieve differently. The heart of many, 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 if not all women, is connection, connection. And women accomplish that in different ways. There's no one size fits all. But the heart of man tends to be task. And so men in general, when tragedy occurs, when trauma and evil occur, when life falls apart, men tend to isolate and do something. Women tend to gravitate and want connection. Again, that's not always true. Your story may be flipped. It's fine. But the point is because men and women grieve differently, they don't comfort each other in the suffering and it just makes the pain worse. We don't have any illustration of Job's marriage falling apart. But who would blame him if it did? What I want to encourage you to do today is if you are going through a tragedy is to do your best to go outside yourself and serve the other person. Wives, it's probably beneficial if you don't look at your husband and say, would you just curse God and die already? 
Men, it's probably wise if you don't look at your wives and call them foolish. I mean, I'm just saying there's a little bit of wisdom for you. But I, most of all, I want you to get this. In the midst of your suffering, whatever your suffering is, would you be careful not to accuse God? I often say God puts on his big boy pants every day. He can handle questions. I mean, he can handle anything. He's God. He can handle your questions. He can handle all those things that you might throw. God, where are you? God, why? Why didn't you stop this? Why are you? When are you going to show up? When's it going to end? God, God, help, God. He can handle all of that. But the reason that Job didn't join the adversary in accusing God of not being good is because he held on to his faith. That God, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me, but I trust you. I know that you're good, though I don't get it. And that's critical. That's an anchor that you've got to hang on to. Ask all the questions you want, but be careful not to accuse. So here's a question. Why did God allow all of this to happen to Job? Again, I'm gonna have an anchor more than an answer, okay? I've wrestled with this myself and my own suffering. Many years ago, my wife and I lost a baby. I've told you that story before. We had what's called an ectopic pregnancy where the baby gets trapped in the fallopian tube. When we found out, it was pretty late in the game, my wife was already bleeding internally. And um, I'll never forget after that, after the surgery that saved my wife's life, her parents are so amazing. They, they had just come to visit and they were on their way back. When they found out, they turned around and just came back. And uh, we were in Colorado and they lived in Kentucky. That was no small trip for them. They came back and they stayed with us. They just took care of everything. They cleaned the house, they did our clothes, uh, they cooked meals. My wife was laying on the couch recovering and I would go out to the garage and I would build stuff because guys, sometimes when tragedy happens, don't you just need to build something? You need something to do with your hands, right? And I would go out and I would just build and I would come back in and check on my wife and she'd you know, be in like some Vicodin nap or something and I'd go back out and build and I'd come back in and check on her, are you doing okay? And come back out, go back in. I was so glad her parents were there. Just, it gave me space to be angry at God because that's what I was. God, where are you? Why are you doing this? You owe me one. Like, I gave up a, a job making more money to serve you. I got teenagers in my youth group who get pregnant and don't want the kids, and this is the thanks I get. And that's literally what I was saying to God. And God didn't cast me into hell. He didn't condemn me. Instead, he met me in my garage and I'll never forget, there was a song, a Christian song at the time by a guy named Jeremy Camp. I don't remember the name of the song, but I just remember the chorus with this, and I will walk by faith even when I cannot see. Because this broken road has prepared your will for me. And it kept playing over the days that I was at home, thankful for my church. They gave me a few days to just kind of process and be with my wife, and I'll never forget, it was about day two or day three, I just lost it, I just lost it, and I broke down and started weeping in my garage, kneeling on the floor. Still don't have answers to my questions, but just saying in that moment, God, I don't get it, but I trust you. My trust is no less secure because this happened, and I know one day I'll hold a baby in heaven that I've never got to hold on earth, Probably won't be a baby, but I don't know how that works. So again, I got anchors, not answers. And I'll say thank you, God, for your faithfulness to me. 
See, you've got your own story. You've got your own hurt. You've got your own pain, that thing that makes you ask God why. And it's okay to ask. But one of those anchors I gotta settle for you real quick is this. Can I trust that God is good when he lets evil happen to me? I'll give you an answer, and the answer is yes, but the answer comes in the form of another anchor. Okay, pastor, it's okay for you to say yes. You get paid to say yes. I'd expect you to say that. Why do you say that? And my answer is look at the cross. And the reason I say look at the cross is because on the cross, we see one who never did anything evil. See, I don't know about you. I know me. And I've done plenty of evil things. I'll give a bad example. It's just an example. So give me grace before I make an application. I have sped many times in my car and never got caught. I remember my dad got a speedy ticket a few years ago and I said something. He's like, he didn't think he deserved it and whatever. I said, what did you argue? You're gonna fight it? He goes, Matt, you know how many times I've gotten away with it? I figure it just kind of evens out the system a little bit. But you know what? I've done legitimately evil things. Things I'm not proud of. Things that if I wanted to build my argument about what a good man I am, I'd look at those things and go, I'm no Job, that's for sure. I deserve that. He didn't. But he did it. And Jesus, going to the cross, never asked, God, are you good? Even though the world is gonna brutalize me, even though the evil one is going to attack me, even though I'm gonna be crucified, God, are you good? And he never asks it. Why does he not ask it? Because he knows in his heart that God is good. How can we know that God is good when we look at the cross? Because what is happening on the cross is so powerful and profound that we see that even when suffering happens, something bigger is happening in your life and in mine. Take a look with me. Colossians chapter two, verse nine. Paul says this, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. This power and authority talk is very specific language where Paul is letting you know that in the cross of Christ, he triumphs over the enemy. Keep reading. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, and having, yeah, go, wait, 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 it gets better. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, yeah, you can go ahead and clap. You want to clap for Jesus. Do that. Okay, okay. <laughs> but the reason this is so powerful is that when Jesus suffered, he brought you life. He conquered your enemy. Now, your enemy can no longer go into the heavenly courts and say, the only reason Job praises you is because you bless him. He can no longer go to God and say, no, 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 not her. She's a failure. I saw her yesterday. I tempted her and she lost because God looks at her and says, nope, that one has been marked by the blood of Jesus. You have no place here anymore. You can't show up and accuse. You can't show up and condemn because you are no longer welcome in this place by the name of Jesus Christ. This whole triumphing over them, there's actually a Roman thing. I, I got a couple of details wrong last service, so you have to tell them that I, I was wrong. Don't, don't tell my wife. I've never been wrong to her before. But I'm just kidding. She's here. I love you, baby. Anyway, so 
This whole thing is actually a Roman thing called a triumphal entry. You ever heard of that before? What would happen is when a general of an army won a battle, he would actually take the general or the king or the whatever of the other group that he beat, he would put them out front, then they'd do this massive parade. They were parading in front of everybody else. The king has come. The king has won. We've destroyed the enemy. Remember, Jesus did a triumphal entry. He rode in on a donkey. It wasn't all that beautiful because everybody looked at it looking for earthly displays of power and might, but the angelic hosts went bonkers in that moment, cheering for the fact that on the cross, Jesus defeated your enemy and publicly shamed him because now he can't accuse you anymore. Yes. I love the way F.F. Bruce says this, and he uses some big words, so stick with me. It's so beautiful. As our Lord was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness, the rulers and authorities imagined that they had him at their mercy, flung themselves upon him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their assault without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of all armor in which they trusted. And he held them aloft in his mighty outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. Now they are disabled and dethroned, and the shameful tree has become the victor's triumphal chariot, before which his captives are driven in humiliating procession, the involuntary and impotent confessors of their overcomers' superiority. And I know as you're like, what does all that deep stuff mean? It means that on the cross of Jesus Christ, this humble, shameful activity where our Savior died, crucified, naked, it looked like he lost, but he won. And he defeated your enemy forever. So what do we do with all of this? Paul says this. So put on the full armor of God. So that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Don't just go through life. Church, prepare for battle. That's why Paul goes on. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, just stand. Stand a little longer, but I'm tired. This battle is depleting me. When is it gonna end? I don't know Keep standing. The God, everybody around me says, I should just quit. You can't be good or you wouldn't let this keep happening. Just keep standing. God, I, I feel so insecure. I don't know what to do next. I feel like I need answers. Just keep standing. God, I don't know if they're gonna go with me into fixing this problem. What if they leave me? Just Keep standing. Paul goes on. Stand firm then 
with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Stand firm then with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Stand firm then with the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Stand firm then when the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Stand firm then with the word of God. After everything else is done and the battle still raging on, just stand firm. And then Paul concludes, yeah. Paul concludes, and I, I got a typo here, but it's Ephesians chapter six, verse 17. And he says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. While you're standing and the enemy's still attacking and you got your armor in place, you just start praying. With this in mind, be alert always and keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Here's what I know. Um, a lot of you come into this message and you got some stuff. And I wanna encourage you right now, if you're so willing, would you be willing to stand if you've got something you're going through and you feel the enemy is attacking you? Would you be willing to stand? Wow. I know you're standing and it feels awkward. Just stand for one more moment. The next 20 or 30 chapters in the book of Job is Job's friends show up to comfort him and the first few friends are terrible. They judge Job. Surely, Job, you did something evil. Surely, Job, you deserve this or God wouldn't do that to you because God is good. God shows up at the end and rebukes all those friends. You know, it's hard for somebody to stand in front of hundreds of people, some of which they don't know, and especially when you're standing, you don't know who's behind you, and you wonder what everybody else thinks of you right now, right? So I just want, <laughs> she said, nope, I don't care. <laughs> I wanna be the kind of church that when people stand and say, I'm hurting, we don't judge. We're not Job's friends. We come alongside them in the name of Jesus, and we love them. But listen, if you're standing right now, and even if you didn't have uh, the, the strength in your legs to stand the last piece thing I need to say to you is the book of Job closes with God talking about a Leviathan. And in Job chapter 41, verse one, God says to Job, Job, do you know how to put a hook in Leviathan's mouth and lead him wherever you want him to go? He then goes on and describes the Leviathan. He's got scales over his back, lots of teeth at his mouth, and smoke and fire shoot from his mouth. What does he sound like to you? A dragon? We've never found a bone of a dragon in the history of the world. Could it be that God is describing for Job his enemy and he's saying, don't miss this if you're standing, and he's saying to Job, Job, I'm subduing your enemy through your suffering. I'm subduing your enemy through your suffering. When you don't quit on me, I'm winning for you. So what I want us to do now is if you're sitting close to any of these people, Nobody gets to go untouched here. Would you just get up from your chair, come around them, put a hand on a shoulder. If you know them, grab a hand. You don't need to say hi, introduce yourself right now. Just come alongside them. Nobody gets to be alone, all right? So make sure nobody's alone. Nobody's alone. Look, if you're visiting with us and you think this is weird, that's cool. Come back next week, it gets better. Or weirder, either way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for subduing our enemy and our suffering. Oh God, my heart goes out. There's so many people just stood. God, what is going on in our lives? 
God, I'm sure there's marriages falling apart, there's businesses falling apart, there's financial crisis, there's health crisis. God, maybe children have died. Parents are sick. Oh God, oh God, please, right now, in the name of Jesus, show up and comfort us. We need you. God, I thank you for the body of Christ right now who's surrounding us in your love. God, thank you. We need you. God, I know you are good. I know you are good. You've revealed yourself in my pain to be good over and over and over again. Would you do that? God, I know that you are. I, I need to change my prayer. God, I know that you're revealing yourself good. Would you open our eyes that we could see where you're moving so we could see the blessings, the, the people you're bringing into our life, the ways you're providing, that God, we would give you the glory and stand firm in our faith. God, please help my brothers and sisters. May they be encouraged today to not quit on you. We thank you, Father, for who you are, for what you're doing in us. And all of God's people prayed and said, amen. Go into a time of communion now. Take your bread and juice and just give God the glory. There's boxes on the tables. Just bring your offering to the Lord. And listen, if you need to keep praying with somebody, we'll get you communion after the service. Don't rush this moment.